By Every Measure Season 2 is supported by the Argosy Foundation. Hey, this is Tariq Moody, Program Director of Hyphen. And this is By Every Measure Season 2, a podcast from Radio Milwaukee, part of the NPR Podcast Network. We're back, creating a safe space for Black voices to be heard and our experiences validated. We understand the deep impact of systemic racism and how it continues to affect our lives in ways that many people outside of community cannot comprehend. While some of the country are trying to stop these conversations from happening, we believe having them is very important and will lead to a better, more inclusive world for all. Because you can't have American history without Black history. On this episode... Milwaukee's biggest challenge has always been the fact that we rely on incremental progress rather than bold progress. Mm -hmm. Perfection has always been the enemy of progress. In our previous episode, we covered housing. We looked at how Milwaukee pushed back against inequity to build its Halyard Park neighborhood. And we looked at a new development coming next door to that neighborhood, aiming to do the same for generations to come. Access to quality housing ties directly into this episode's topic, generational wealth. And we're going to look at it through two different lenses, both through housing and through entrepreneurship. When it comes to generational wealth, those are the proven ways to build it. We've seen it happen at a stunning pace for generations of white families, all while black and brown families have built their wealth at a fraction of the speed. Historian and co-host Reggie Jackson starts us off. How did this inequity become so rooted across generations? For those who really don't really understand what that means when we say the generational wealth gap, can you give us a little one-on-one? Oh, sure. So, you know, when we think of generational wealth, that's wealth that's passed down from parent to children, you know. So you start off with something really special and you have something to pass off to your children. You know, a lot of white people take this for granted that their parents are going to help them buy their first Mm -hmm. home. Or maybe even sell them their first home, you know, the home that they grow up in, their parents may sell it to them or even give it to them. And so that wealth stays in the family. And as a house, you know, gains in value, you know, you're gaining wealth as a family. But for black people, it's been the exact opposite. You know, we've done the same thing in many instances. We bought homes, but our homes have not gained the same level of value at the rate they have for whites. So in many cases, our homes are less valuable now than they were 20 years ago or 40 years ago. And so we have like two forces at play, one that allows white people in white communities to see, you know, those investments back in the 50s when they bought a house for like $5,500. And now that house is like $500,000 house. You bought the same house in the city of Milwaukee in a black neighborhood, $5,500. And now that house is like worth $27,000. So you're not going to see the same level of generational wealth. So it's really, I think, very difficult for us to to kind of shift into a space where you're going to see that generational wealth gap shrink between blacks and whites. Because, as I said, I think the growth in the value of white homes was artificial. It wasn't real. It was fake. But nobody wants to acknowledge that. They weren't just, well, you know, this is a great neighborhood, you know, great this, great that. No, it was a white neighborhood. And so, you know, it gained value because it was a white neighborhood. In the black neighborhoods, you know, lost value because they were black neighborhoods or Hispanic neighborhoods. And so I don't think that we're going to close that gap. People have studied it at the rate that we're going. It's going to take hundreds of years for us to close that gap if everything stays the same. Who's responsible to close that gap? Well, I don't think there's anybody taking responsibility for closing the gap. Not taking, but who's, if we want to close that gap, 
who are the parties responsible for making that happen? Well, I think a big part of it is in the real estate industry and how they appraise the value of homes. You know, there's been a lot of conversation the last several years about appraisers not appraising a home the same based on who lives in that home. So, you know, there have been multiple stories of black families that, you know, want to sell their home. They have an appraisal done and they don't like it. So they have another appraiser come in and then they, they, they gain a great deal of value from the second appraiser. Same house. They didn't change anything, but one appraiser values it much more than another. And a lot of black people have found that, okay, listen, we have to make this house look like black people don't live here. You know, take that picture of Martin Luther King off the wall, you know. Uh, let's take the family photographs off the wall. Let's make it look less like a black home and it'll gain value. You know, there's a family I remember reading about in uh, Virginia, mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. area that gained like over $400,000 yeah. in an appraisal because they basically de-blacked their home. And, you know, those are things that I think are the responsibility of the real estate industry, you know, appraisers. There's been a lot of conversations about the bias in appraisals. I think that's going to play a huge role. You know, there should be no difference between a house based on who lives in it. You know, a house is a house. I mean, so a house with a black family that's the same as a house with a white family in a different neighborhood. And, you know, despite the fact that pressure is being put on, you know, real estate industry appraisers to look at things differently. I think there's still a great deal of bias built into the system. Hmm. The other aspect of generational wealth, it's been a lot in the news, is entrepreneurship. What's your thoughts on entrepreneurship and, and helping close that gap? Well, I think that that would be great to help close the gap with the exception of one thing. Most capital that flows into entrepreneurship flows into white people's hands. People of color, particularly blacks, don't have access to the same level of capital to start a firm that white people have. I was reading something not all that long ago that talked about capital investment and how it's driven into certain communities and other communities are just kind of left on the outside. I think entrepreneurship is great, but what people don't understand, you know, it's great to start a business, but you have to sustain that business. You need money. You need capital to sustain yourself. You know, most businesses are not going to last through the first five years because they're, you know, they're not going to make money right away. You have to sustain those difficult years. And the way that businesses do that is they get your constant flow of capital to help them survive those early years. And unfortunately, America, venture capitalists don't invest in black community. You know, they don't invest in black people who want to start businesses in the way that they should. Most of that money well over 90% of it still goes to white people primarily. So this idea that, you know, entrepreneurship is the key, it's only going to help if we start to see some of those dollars invested in people of color. Entrepreneurship is key. You heard him say it right there. And it's something I've been saying for years too. If you have followed Radio Milwaukee's previous podcast, you know how much I care about this issue. In 2021, I hosted two whole seasons of another podcast, Diverse Disruptors, where I talked to a truly inspiring lineup of black and brown entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and founders. Go ahead and drop it a follow. We got a link in the description box. Every single one of them hit some kind of barrier in launching their company, mostly making their case for their financing. And coming up next, this guest is someone we could have had on Diverse Disruptors too. 
His company is doing so much of the work Reggie talked about to invest in black business, to keep it local, all to build generational wealth. Kevin Newell, founder of Royal Capital, joins the podcast next. His billion-dollar vision for black Milwaukee after the break. Thanks for listening to the second season of By Every Measure. If you'd like to continue the conversation, we encourage you to join our By Every Measure discussion group on Radio Milwaukee's Facebook page. Each week, we're opening a dialogue on the episode's topics with daily conversation prompts and a weekly virtual meetup to discuss responses and navigate the community conversations collectively. You can find the group at facebook.com slash Radio Milwaukee. Thanks for joining us, Kevin, on uh, the second season of By Every Measure. We're going to talk about a lot of topics from generational wealth, the black middle class in Milwaukee, your work with Thrive On, and also your billion-dollar vision, which I found very interesting. But your story, your background sounds very fascinating. So I want to know, talk about where you start. Like, you're not from Milwaukee. So talk about your background growing up. Yeah, so I don't have the privilege of saying that I was born and raised in Mm -hmm. Milwaukee. But Milwaukee is home for me. I, I moved up here when I was a kid and went to uh, Phyllis Wheatley on 20th and North, 20th and Monarchy, you know, and then went on to Sammy Morris and Nascara and Custer High School. So I, I was schooled here and that's been, you know, I, I would count that as a significant piece of my foundation and how I got here, the goods and the bads. Yeah, so I like to call Milwaukee home. Talk about your childhood growing up in Milwaukee. What was Milwaukee like when you were growing up? Throughout high school, you know, certainly a lot different than now. When I look at the context of me being able to, you know, ride my bike from 31st and North Avenue where I lived, all the way down to the lakefront, and then come back home at seven o'clock at night and nobody <laughs> have a problem, right? That's a lot different than times are now. But you know, I, I think Milwaukee at the time was very much centered around connectivity and family. Now I feel like we're a bunch of strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a uh, very, very complicated. But I think that has a lot to do with some of the institutional challenges that we have right now um, in terms of poor education and all the other challenges that come along with, you know, a group of disenfranchised people. Mm-hmm. So we're going to jump ahead. You're CEO, founder of World Capital Group. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we get into what that is, and a lot of people maybe not understand that whole world of capital. What was the process to get you to where you are today? Like, how did you decide that this is my path? You know what? So I went to Custer High School, and a lot of folks know that as one of the most unsuccessful schools to the point where it was ranked last and it got closed down. And Mm. they've since transitioned it away from being a traditional school in in the way that it was and renamed it Barack Obama to kind of get away Mm. from some of the connotation. But I I did have the, the privilege, though, of getting a little bit better and not being part of the pack per se, going into my um, junior year. And there's several circumstances that kind of led to that. You know, I got arrested for some trumped up charges at the time, um, was, you know, just kind of being a part of the neighborhood and um, ended up transitioning and, uh, you know, making a better effort um, junior and senior year to the point where I was able to have a basic level profile in terms of grades and so forth to get into college. And so, 
my class at the time, we started off with 500 students freshman year, and then we ended up graduating about 89. Mm, wow. And uh, I was one of the only ones that went to college. And so it was um, at this point I look back at because I was like, I was always a leader. Um, mm. I hated that I had led in the wrong direction at that time. <laughs> but I uh, got to Whitewater, majored in business, business management. And I uh, took that program very seriously. I ended up interning at the time with Coast Corporation most of my mm. undergrad years um, around business management, you know, marketing and all that good stuff. But then my senior year of undergrad, I actually uh, got accepted into the Marquette real estate program okay. called Acre. And the Acre program at the time was set up more as a, like a graduate level program mm. for experienced folks. That That's has, changed now, right? It's called a more, yeah, yeah okay. it's, it's changed quite a bit. Um, but at the time, though, the program, and they, made, they, they bent the rules a little bit to let me in because I wasn't the typical qualified candidate. But they let me into the program. So I was commuting down from Whitewater as I was finishing my fourth year there. Mm. And when I graduated, you know, I had the decision to go down a traditional corporate route mm -hmm. uh, and, and go work for Coles or one of my other offers at the time. And then uh, the program at Marquette, though, had, was set up as if you finish as one of the top six students, you have one of six uh, one year placement opportunities mm -hmm. with one of the corporate founders. And so I decided to uh, take the one year placement opportunity. I finished in the top six, took the uh, the one year placement opportunity to go work in public finance, working for our state HFA housing finance agency, WIDA. Mm -hmm. And that gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about how the government participates from a public private standpoint mm -hmm. in building out community from taxes and bonds, tax credits, you know, all those kind of things mm -hmm. that are oftentimes leveraged to create economic impact. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed there for about three and a half years, though, rising up the ranks and learning more and more about this space. And it was a brilliant time. I had an amazing amount of colleagues that were really supportive of me. The reason I left is kind of it's odd, but I was having too much fun there. <laughs> I was uh, and I was living in, in Milwaukee, but commuting to Madison. I had just also wrapped up my MBA. Mm. Um, so Whitewater had paid for me to come back and do my MBA. So I literally was waking up in Milwaukee at 5 o'clock, 5.30, getting on the road, driving to Madison to get there by 7.30, staying there to 4.30, then driving an hour to Whitewater to get to class from 6.15 to 9.40 and do it all over again mm. three days a week. But it was my boot camp, and it was just, <laughs> I'm 22, 23. I don't know any better. And um, But after getting to that, that, that stage where I was uh, starting to have those conversations with HR about retirement planning and stuff like mm. that, I got a little scared. <laughs> and I said to myself, I said, you know, my entrepreneurial spirit is like almost gone. And so I need to do something about mm. that. So I simply just walked into my boss's office and gave him a three months notice and said, I'm going to be leaving September. Just like that. Just like that. <laughs> just walked in and said, hey. Yeah, that's bold. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at, th at that time, you don't have I didn't have any financial obligations. Mm. Right. I lived at a duplex. I didn't have a car note. I mm. didn't really have, you know, any financial burdens. I, I, I was very self-sufficient and so forth. And I had a little bit of money set aside. And I thought now is the time to take the risk. And so I did. So I left September 2010 to found Royal Capital. Since then, Royal Capital has gone on to do um, significant investments and developments across the state. Uh, we've expanded to Atlanta. You know, we, we, we've done hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. We're now embarking on our $1 billion five-year investment platform, which will probably, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll exceed that in year three. Can you describe the business model, Royal Capital? Because are you a private equity? Are you a developer? 
Can you describe that for the the layman exactly the yeah, yeah. business of Royal Capital? So uh, we we joke about it. We, we we generically say Royal Capital is a playground for us big kids, and it's a venturing holding company. Mm-hmm. And what the venturing holding company basically means is that we own several different operating companies. So if we build a hundred million dollar investment or development through our development company that we own. That's one holding, right? So we'll develop it, own it, and operate it. So with the Milwaukee Bucks and 550 Ultra Lofts, mm-hmm. um, we came in and we purchased the land from the Milwaukee Bucks in partnership with them. And this is the residential component that's connected to the arena. And we build it, we own it, and we operate it. And it's a holding inside of our portfolio for the long term. We also have other ventures that are outside of real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, so we invest through our venture capital arm into small businesses, both on the early stage startup side, as well as micro businesses. Mm-hmm. And that includes us being able to come in and leverage some capital along with some intellectual capital to aid these businesses that we think can have a significant impact on community and in bottom line. And it allows us to do so with a focus on particularly black businesses, but we're also very, very open to other businesses as well. In the Business Journal, there was a report that you have this $1 billion vision. Mm-hmm. Talk more about that. And how's that? And does that relate? Because we're going to get into eventually talking about this generational wealth and, and mm-hmm. the black middle class. Does that relate to the idea of what trying to close a generational gap, this $1 billion vision? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at particularly in Milwaukee, it's almost a city of have and have nots. Mm-hmm. And the haves oftentimes include our, our, our downtown and near downtown mm-hmm. markets. And while I'm certainly in the same boat of recognizing the disenfranchised neighborhoods and so forth, and, and being an active participant in the downtown market as well, I'm also under the belief that we can do something about it. And what I look at when I think about the downtown market, it's, it's, it's oftentimes led by a developer, which is what we do. Mm-hmm. Some developer comes in with some vision and then the developer comes in and connects the dots with the public sector in terms of understanding zoning for the vision, um, government participation on the financial side, and then working with architect and other stakeholders to have that vision come to fruition, right? And that's what we lack in our neighborhoods is a qualified developer often to come in and help connect the dots. So I can go to the community and identify with the community and alongside the community with our engagement strategy, going door to door and talking to folks about what we miss, what we're missing mm-hmm. here. And then be able to advance the ball and, and help connect the dots on how that works because we understand the public-private partnership side of financing. We understand mm-hmm. how to work with architects. We understand how to manage and make construction work. Um, and we know how to operate and manage properties or whatever the vision is, right? So I think that in order to have the black middle class in Milwaukee or surrounding areas, we need two things. We need quality, diversity. And if it's the city of Milwaukee, we need a better performing education ecosystem, which is something that I don't think that any of us are satisfied with right now. And you said quality diversity. Can you expound on that? Are you meaning attracting people to Milwaukee or trying to grow? I think quality diversity means several different things, right? So Milwaukee can say that we're a very diverse group of people on the north side of Milwaukee, right? Mm-hmm. And that can mean that we're 90% black. That's just not enough, mm-hmm. right? I want to be around 90% black folks who are thriving, 
I want our education system to be strong. I want to have good quality outcomes on health and wealth. That's what I mean by good quality diversity, mm-hmm. to just put a whole bunch of black folks into a room and say, <laughs> voila, diversity. That's not really in- of interest to me. So I want to figure out ways that we can improve the quality of life for these folks so they can all can reach the middle class themselves. In terms of recruitment, though, if we were to set out as a community to say, hey, let's focus on two different sectors of diversity in terms of age demographics. And we were to say, hey, let's figure out a way that we can attract 1,000 families to come work for Johnson Controls, Northwestern Mutual, Coles Corporation or whatever. 1,000 families a year. We're going to try to get them to locate, you know, to uh, Milwaukee and perimeter neighborhoods or, or, or jurisdictions, but not too far from the city mm-hmm. and keep everybody within 15 minutes mm-hmm. of downtown. The quality of life for the middle class would change dramatically because I think it would change the makeup above what mm-hmm. we see every day, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you put them into some of the near downtown neighborhoods like, you know, Josie Heights mm-hmm. and some of the other areas that have some room for development. But also, if you were to target an opportunity to kind of say, hey, the other age demographic is probably the the yuppies, right? The young urban mm-hmm. professionals that you have, said yuppies. I've heard that term in a while. I know, right? <laughs> the young urban professionals that are more concerned about where the local coffee spot is mm-hmm. and where the local watering hole is and where the local friends hang out. This whole new working remote philosophy mm-hmm of, you know, I can work anywhere in America for my job. They just want me to sign on by 8 a.m. their time. If we can recruit 1,000 folks a year or a pick a number a year to say, hey, come to Milwaukee. You're going to have a quality of life at a lower expense rate. And we have all these fun services and things to do. And let's try to get 1,000 black folks to be a part of that. Then I think you will have the opportunity to populate some of your downtown real estate populate your downtown overall, and then you have a, 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 a an aging population that eventually become part of your neighborhoods because they'll be so sticky in mm-hmm. terms of wanting to be in Milwaukee, wanting to be in the near downtown area. And if you got your school system already heading down a pathway mm-hmm. of being performing, we're going to have, you know, uh, competitive bids on most of our, our homes because folks are going to say, this is the spot I want to mm-hmm. be. Because now you got 5,000 black families that are part of the new middle class here. They're all thriving. Hmm. What else needs to be done? What does this, the public sector you think needs to do to help kind of close that, that wealth gap for the black community in Milwaukee? Yeah. So I think that we're in a new administration now Mm -hmm. and that can be looked at as two ways. We can be looking at to maintain status quo or we can be, and I use it as the bottom, right? Because I don't think we should be looking at going any worse than what we are right now. Or we could look at it as an opportunity to go beyond status quo and really do some significantly bold things. Milwaukee's biggest challenge has always been the fact that we rely on incremental progress rather than bold progress. Mm-hmm. Perfection has always been the enemy of progress. And we like to, we like to create, <laughs> a, a, yeah, we like to create a thousand plans Right. Mm-hmm. That go get shelved somewhere. We'll have a neighborhood plan for this. We'll have an idea <laughs> for this. And let's study this for five years as we perfect it. Right. So just going out and just. Yeah. But it just becomes the enemy of the progress. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's similar to when I started my company 13 years ago. Now, I didn't have a grandiose plan. I knew the plan was going to develop as I was flying the plane. Mm-hmm. And like they say, you got to build a plane where you're mm-hmm. flying it sometimes. And it's risky and so forth. But I, if I think that anybody deserves some risk taking, it's this community. I mean, we've mm-hmm. been exceptionally challenged as a, as a whole. 
So I think that we do have the opportunity to do something different. What I do like is the fact that we're getting a lot more aggressive with how we leverage our primary public financing tool, which is TIF, mm-hmm. right? So our tax incremental financing has been a primary tool that's helped to been, that been utilized to build up our downtown, mm-hmm. right? So our, our arena district could not have- Point. Walker's <laughs> Point, ton of TIF financing, which means public dollars. Mm-hmm. The arena district, a ton of public dollars in turn through TIF. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars, right? In the cases of, of how these communities have gotten to the point where they're thriving. They don't get, they're not thriving simply because the private sector came in with a, a, a mm-hmm. bank loan and some guys came in and, yeah. and brought some equity. No, it's a significant portion that's being financed by taxpayers. It's the same thing that, uh, you know, we just had Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Speech about Martin Luther King going to Washington, most people don't realize it's another part of that speech mm-hmm. where I shared on Instagram where he talked about how the white immigrants, the white families got land grants, they got all the help money Absolutely. from the government colleges, they got all this money. Yep. While the slave who were free got nothing yep. to get out. Even the slave owners got reparations. Absolutely. And in the last part of the quote, we're coming to Washington get our check. Yep, yep. And it's kind of like, like it really hasn't changed. In the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. This is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. To close out the conversation on generational wealth, let's bring back Ken Robertson. He's an executive vice president at Greater Milwaukee Foundation and is one of the leaders of the Thrive On Development. He worked directly with Kevin and Royal Capital on the project. I believe representation really matters. And the perspective that I have from kind of growing up in the city, my neighborhood experience, how I engage outside of, you know, work is important. Yeah, I mean, this is what this whole about is like, one of the goals, we understand our listeners at Radio Milwaukee, majority white, and hopefully we have these honest conversations and the people listening are probably are having it, they're at the table where we're not at, and hopefully somebody listening will say, oh, bleep, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Hey, Tariq, can you connect me to Ken? Can you connect me to Kevin? I wanna, I wanna do something. I'm, that's my ultimate vision for this. Yeah. Because I lived in nine cities, and none of my cities I lived in are perfect. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Atlanta boy. I love Atlanta, black Mecca. It has a gentrification problem like no other, bro- <laughs> like, right. You know, me and my dad, he's Montgomery, like, we should buy a house in Montgomery so we can share it. And I'm like, well, you know, the average price of a house in Atlanta is 400K now. Right. <laughs> you right. know, so like, no no city's perfect, but at least you see the risk taking in the other urban centers that Milwaukee's not doing. And I want to, I'm, hopefully, I'm sharing that, like, somebody in a boardroom, C level, who has the access, that has the connections, decides to be inspired to make, take action and, and, 
get Milwaukee out of the out of the bad headlines and give us the good headlines. That's kind of my ultimate vision for this. And I would add representation really matters. There's no substitute for having some folks that look like the folks that we're talking mm. about actually at the table, leaning in in an authentic way to really address the work mm. around it. There's just no substitute for mm. it. Because again, it's so easy to say that there's a handful of folks mm. around the city that actually are exception to the rule, but the rule is it relates to 95% of the mm. people. And that's not true. And mm. we gotta press more for real representation of partners or, or, or folks that actually command real power mm. in these organizations. I believe that's one of the key triggers for us to really move, mm. move things forward. Going back to that idea of being perfect, a perfect city, that day may never come. But one thing that will always halt progress is losing that vision Ken talked about. A vision to try new things, to take risks, to invest where it's needed, and ultimately make Milwaukee the equitable place it deserves to be. These changes don't happen overnight, true, but they can happen more quickly than history has shown. Building generational wealth doesn't and can't take another few hundred years for black and brown America. We don't have the time. That's all for this episode of By Every Measure Season 2. If you like what you're hearing and want to go deeper, check out our Facebook discussion group. We have a daily discussion prompts and weekly virtual meetup so you can connect with other listeners at your own pace. Meantime, make sure you check out the first season of By Every Measure. And I mentioned this podcast earlier, both seasons one and two of Diverse Disruptors. If you like this episode, you'll probably find these conversations interesting too. Plenty more about generational wealth, entrepreneurship, and venture capital in both seasons of Diverse Disruptors. We got a link below. And coming up on our next episode, we're closing out the season with a look at a bigger topic, a theme that has run through every one of these episodes, and that's resilience. In both seasons of By Every Measure, we learn just how broken so many of these systems are. And when broken systems mesh with other broken systems, you get the mess we see today. So how do these leaders of color and the community itself keep pushing forward, even when the path is so much harder, when there's so much resistance? It comes back to that word again, resilience. I'm Tariq Moody, along with Kim Shine and Reggie Jackson. Talk to you next time. By Every Measure Season 2 is hosted by Tariq Moody and Reggie Jackson, as well as contributor Kim Shine. I'm Nate Imig, executive producer for the podcast, which is mixed and edited by Kiri Salinas, with segment producing by Salam Fatire. Mallory Wallace and DJ Brewer manage our community engagement and our Facebook discussion group, while Sarah Lahr leads our marketing team of Dan Reiner and Aaron Bagata. Brett Kraskowski is Radio Milwaukee's web editor, and Maxie Jackson is Radio Milwaukee's executive director. Thanks most of all to our members for making this and all content from Radio Milwaukee possible. Radio Milwaukee is hyphen 414music.fm and 88.9 in Milwaukee. By Every Measure Season 2 is an original podcast production of Radio Milwaukee, part of the NPR Podcast Network.